You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Chapter 8 Seven Letters on the Dirty Alphabet The 17th of February shone out bright and clear, and a frosty sunlight illumined the windows of the court where Richard Marwood stood to be tried for his life. Never, perhaps, had that court been so crowded. Never, perhaps, had there been so much anxiety felt in Slopperton for the result of any trial, as was felt that day for the issue of the trial of Richard Marwood. The cold, bright sunlight streaming in at the windows seemed to fall brightest and coldest on the wan white face of the prisoner at the bar. Three months of mental torture had done their work, and had written their progress in such characters upon that young and once radiant countenance as time, in his smooth and peaceful course, would have taken years to trace. But Richard Marwood was calm today, with the awful calmness of that despair which has passed all hope. Suspense had exhausted him, but he had done with suspense and felt that his fate was sealed, unless, indeed, Heaven, infinite both in mercy and in power, raised up, as by a miracle, some earthly instrument to save him. The court was one vast sea of eager faces, for, to the spectators, this trial was as a great game of chance, which the counsel for the prosecution, the judge and the jury, played against the prisoner and his advocate, and at which the prisoner staked his life. There was but one opinion in that vast assemblage, and that was that the accused would lose in this dreadful game and that he well deserved to lose. There had been betting in Slopperton on the result of this awful hazard, for the theory of chances is to certain minds so delightful that the range of subjects for a wager may ascend from a maggot race to a trial for murder. Some adventurous spirits had taken desperate odds against the outsider acquittal, and many enterprising gentlemen had made what they considered good books by putting heavy sums on the decided favorite found guilty. As, however, there might be a commutation of the sentence of death to transportation for life, some speculators had bet upon the chance of the prisoner being found guilty but not executed, or, as it had been forcibly expressed, had backed penal servitude against gallows. So there were private interests, as well as a public interest, among that swelling ocean of men and women, and Richard had but very few backers in the great and terrible game that was being played. In a corner of the gallery of the court, high up over the heads of the multitude, there was a little spot railed off from the public and accessible only to the officials. Here, among two or three policemen, stood our friend Mr. Joseph Peters 
with his mouth very much on one side, and his eyes fixed intently upon the prisoner at the bar. The gallery in which he stood faced the dock, though at a great distance from it. If there was one man in that vast assembly who, next to the prisoner, was most wretched, that man was the prisoner's counsel. He was young, and this was only his third or fourth brief, and this was, moreover, the first occasion upon which he had ever been entrusted with an important case. He was an intensely nervous and excitable man, and failure would be to him worse than death, and he felt failure inevitable. He had not one inch of ground for the defense, and in spite of the prisoner's repeated protestations of his innocence, he believed that prisoner to be guilty. He was an earnest man, and this belief damped his earnestness. He was a conscientious man, and he felt that to defend Richard Marwood was something like a dishonest action. The prisoner pleaded not guilty in a firm voice. We read of this wherever we read of the trial of a great criminal. We read of the firm voice, the calm demeanor, the composed face, and the dignified bearing, and we wonder. Would it not be more wonderful were it otherwise? If we consider the pitch to which that man's feelings have been wrought, the tension of every nerve, the exertion of every force, mental and physical, to meet those five or six desperate hours, we wonder no longer. The man's life has become a terrible drama, and he is playing his great act. That mass of pale and watchful faces carries him through the long agony, or perhaps... It is less an agony than an excitement. It may be that his mind is darkened and that he cannot see beyond the awful present into the more awful future. He is not busy with the vision of a ghastly structure of wood and iron, a dangling rope swinging loose in the chill morning air till it is tightened and strained by a quivering and palpitating figure which so soon grows rigid. He does not... It is to be hoped. See this. Life for him today stands still, and there is not room in his breast, absorbed with one anxious desire to preserve a proud and steady outward seeming, for a thought of that dreadful future which may be so close at hand. So Richard Marwood, in an unfaltering voice, pleaded, Not guilty. There was among that vast crowd but one person, who believed him. I, Richard Marwood, thou mightest reverence those dirty hands, for they have spelt out the only language, except that of thy wretched mother, that ever spoke conviction of thy innocence. Now the prisoner, though firm and collected in his manner, spoke in so low and subdued a voice as to be only clearly audible to those near him, it happened that the judge, one of the celebrities of the bench, was afflicted with a trifling infirmity which he would never condescend to acknowledge. That infirmity was partial deafness. He was what is called hard of hearing on one side, and his, to use a common expression, gamier happened to be nearest Richard. Guilty, said the judge, so-so guilty, very good, 
"'Pardon me, my lord,' said the counsel for the defense. "'The prisoner pleaded not guilty.' "'Nonsense, sir. Do you suppose me deaf?' asked his lordship, "'at which there was a slight titter among the court. "'The barrister gave his head a deprecatory shake. "'Of course, a gentleman in his lordship's position could not be deaf.' "'Very well, then,' said the judge. "'Unless I am deaf, the prisoner pleaded guilty. "'I heard him, sir, with my own ears. "'My own ears.' "'The barrister thought his lordship should have said, "'My own ear, as the game organ ought not to count. "'Perhaps,' said the judge, "'perhaps the prisoner will be good enough to repeat his plea, "'and this time he will be good enough to speak out.' "'Not guilty,' said Richard again.' in a firm but not a loud voice, his long imprisonment, with days, weeks, and months of slow agony, had so exhausted his physical powers that to speak at all, under such circumstances, was an effort. "'Not guilty,' said the judge. "'Why, the man doesn't know his own mind. The man must be a born idiot. He can't be right in his intellect.' Scarcely had the words passed his lordship's lips— when a long, low whistle resounded through the court. Everybody looked up towards a corner of the gallery from which the sound came, and the officials cried, Order! Among the rest, the prisoner raised his eyes, and looking to the spot from which this unexampled and daring interruption proceeded, recognized the face of the man who had spelt out the words, Not guilty, in the railway carriage. Their eyes met, and the man signaled to Richard to watch his hands, while with his fingers he spelt out several words, slowly and deliberately. This occurred during the pause caused by the endeavors of the officials to discover what person had dared to whistle at the close of his lordship's remark. The counsel for the prosecution stated the case, a very clear case, it seemed, too, against Richard Marwood, "'Here,' said the barrister, "'is the case of a young man who, after squandering a fortune "'and getting deeply in debt in his native town, "'leaves that town, as it is thought by all, never to return. "'For seven years he does not return. "'His widowed and lonely mother awaits in anguish "'for any tidings of this heartless reprobate. "'But for seven long years, by not so much as one line or one word, "'sent through any channel, whatever, "'does he attempt to relieve her anxiety. "'His townsmen believe him to be dead. "'His mother believes him to be dead, "'and it is to be presumed from his conduct "'that he wishes to be lost sight of "'by all to whom he was once dear. "'But at the end of this seven years, "'his uncle, his mother's only brother, "'a man of large fortune, "'returns from India "'and takes up his temporary abode "'at the Black Mill.' Of course, all Slopperton knows of the arrival of this gentleman, and knows also the extent of his wealth. We are always interested in rich people, gentlemen of the jury. Now, it is not very difficult to imagine that through some channel or other, the prisoner at the bar was made aware of his uncle's return and his residence at the Black Mill. The fact was mentioned in every one of the five enterprising journals which are the pride of Slopperton. The prisoner may have seen one of these journals, 
He may have had some former boon companion, resident in Slopperton, with whom he may have been in correspondence. Be that as it may, gentlemen, on the eighth night after Mr. Monahue Harding's arrival, the prisoner at the bar appears, after seven years' absence, with a long face and a penitent story, to beg his mother's forgiveness. Gentlemen, we know the boundless power of maternal love, the inexhaustible depth of affection in a mother's breast. His mother forgave him. The fatted calf was killed. The returned wanderer was welcomed to the home he had rendered desolate. The past was wiped out, and seven long years of neglect and desertion were forgotten. The family retired to rest. That night, gentlemen, a murder was committed of a deeper and darker dye than guilt ordinarily wears. A murder which in centuries hence will stand amongst the blackest chapters in the gloomy annals of crime. Under the roof whose shelter he had sought for the repose of his old age, Monahue Harding was cruelly and brutally murdered. Now, gentlemen, who committed this outrage? Who was the monster in human form that perpetrated this villainous, cowardly, and bloodthirsty deed? Suspicion, gentlemen of the jury, only points to one man, and to that man suspicion points with so unerring a finger that the crime stands revealed in the broad glare of detected guilt. That man is the prisoner at the bar. On the discovery of the murder, the returned wanderer, the penitent and dutiful son, was, of course, sought for. But was he to be found? No, gentlemen. The bird had flown. The affectionate son, who after seven years' desertion had returned to his mother's feet, as it was, of course, presumed never again to leave her, had departed, secretly, in the dead of the night, choosing to sneak out of a window like a burglar, rather than to leave by the door, as the legitimate master of the house. Suspicion at once points to him. He is sought and found. Where, gentlemen? Forty miles from the scene of the murder, with the money rifled from the cabinet of the murdered man in his possession, and with his coat sleeve stained by the blood of his victim. These gentlemen are, in brief, the circumstances of this harrowing case. And I think you will agree with me that never did circumstantial evidence so clearly point out the true criminal. I shall now proceed to call the witnesses for the Crown. There was a pause and a little bustle in the court. The waves of the human sea were agitated for a moment. The backers of the favorites, guilty and gallows, felt they had made safe books. During this pause, a man pushed his way through the crowd up to the spot where the prisoner's counsel was seated and put a little dirty slip of paper into his hand. There was written on it only one word, a word of three letters. The counsel read it and then tore the slip of paper into the smallest atoms it was possible to reduce it to, and threw the fragments on the floor at his feet. But a warm flush mounted to his face, hitherto so pale, and he prepared himself to watch the evidence. Richard Marwood, who knew the strength of the evidence against him, and knew his powerlessness to controvert it, had listened to its recapitulation with the preoccupied air of a man whom the proceedings of the day in no way concerned. 
his abstracted manner had been noticed by the spectators and much commented upon. It was singular, but at this most important crisis it appeared as if his chief attention was attracted by Joseph Peters, for he kept his eyes intently fixed upon the corner where that individual stood. The eyes of the people, following the direction of Richard's eyes, saw nothing but a little group of officials leaning over a corner of the gallery. The crowd did not see what Richard saw, namely, the fingers of Mr. Peters slowly shaping seven letters, two words, four letters in the first word, and three letters in the second. There lay before the prisoner a few sprigs of rue. He took them up, one by one, and gathering them together in a little bouquet, placed them in his buttonhole, the eyes of the multitude staring at him all the time. Strange to say, this trifling action appeared to be so pleasing to Mr. Joseph Peters that he danced, as involuntarily, the first steps of an extempore hornpipe, and being sharply called to order by the officials, relapsed into insignificance for the remainder of the trial. Phoebe Reads a Mystery is recorded in the studios of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC.